Ladies and gentlemen, today I am standing up for Cicero. So Cicero, to give him his full name, Marcus Tullius Cicero, was born in 106 BCE at Arpinum. It's about 65 miles outside of Rome, and he lives through a time of tremendous social and political and military upheaval, right from his teens, pretty much, when the social wars happen. Now, these sound like fun, <laughs> don't they? Ah, oh, script by George Lucas, directed by Ken Loach, surprising. But... Um, <laughs> They are not fun. They are when Rome declares war on its Socii, its allies, hence social wars. And that happens through Cicero's teens. So perhaps it's no wonder that later in life he is accused of being overly timid in a military context. He was an incredibly prolific writer. We have 52 of his legal speeches surviving. He wrote over 80, I think. We have 900 letters that he wrote to family and friends, six books on rhetoric, fragments of another eight books on philosophy, which he wrote after his daughter's death when he was in need of consolation. The thing is that because of his letters, because of those 900 letters, we have this extraordinary juxtaposition of this very bombastic, self-satisfied public persona and this much more, I don't want to say humble because obviously that wouldn't be true, but let's go with self-deprecating, this more self-deprecating persona that appears when he's writing to his brother Quintus or to his wife or to his friend Atticus. Quite aside from anything else, they're full of extraordinary bits of gossip. There's one, it's like a month after Julius Caesar's assassination, where he refers to it periphrastically, you're welcome, as the Ides of March. It must be one of the very earliest instances of that phrase being used. You know what happened on the Ides of March? He might as well wink as he writes it. There's a lovely sense of his absurdism, his love for kind of slight whimsy. You do not see this in his legal speeches very often, but there it is in his letters. There's one which he sends to a man named Caelius Rufus, who's trying to get wild animals together to put on a games. So he sends a message to Cicero, away in a province, saying, can you get me some panthers, please, for my games? And Cicero writes back saying, I'm trying really hard to get you some panthers, but they're remarkably scarce. And the ones that we can find keep complaining about the fact that they're being chased. And I hear that a few of them have now headed over the border into another province where they're safe. It's like you do not expect this level of whimsy from a man who will write eventually endless speeches about how everyone else is awful and wrong. His name, Cicero, comes from the Latin word kika, meaning chickpea, which is nice, isn't it? One of the world's greatest orators, patron saint of vegans. Thanks, Cicero. Um, <laughs> He is. In Plutarch, it says it's because one of his ancestors has a, a, like a ridge in his nose, like a chickpea, which I suppose is probably more plausible than the whole, you know, patron saint of Chanadal. Mm. Um, his name is less well known than many of the other great names of Roman senatorial families, the Metelli or the Claudii. And the reason for that is that Cicero is the first Cicero to become consul in his whole family history. And this hardly ever happens. The Senate is an incredibly closed shop of posh people. You have to be rich before you can qualify, and then you have to stand for various magistracies. And there are loads of rules about what order you do them in and how old you have to be to complete each one. Cicero breaks into that closed shop as a novus homo, a new man. He's the first person to do it in more than 30 years. So he has to be elected, and he doesn't have 
the family connections that other people who are trying to be elected to the same magistracies, remember it gets more competitive each year, he has to create some influence. He has to win friends and influence people. And the best way for him to do that is legal speeches. It is the single thing he is better at than anyone else who has ever lived. Would you please welcome Professor Llewellyn Morgan. Llewellyn, I think that combination of public and private Cicero, those speeches that are made to be delivered in front of a big audience, and then the private letters that he writes to his friends, give us an unusual insight into him as a human person. Is it the most information that we have over anybody from the ancient world? I feel like it might be. Surely has to be, and that's... You know, the most wonderful thing about the letters is they give us insight into the real life, into the compromises, into the shortcomings of a political figure that, that, that we wouldn't otherwise get. So, I mean, Cicero's letters are just this amazing thing, an archive of information Cicero writing them, but also other people writing to, to Cicero. We hear about, you know, about panthers and about everything else that, that's uh, bothering people who are in contact with Cicero. So, yes, it's a, this astonishing three-dimensional picture that we can develop of, uh, of the guy. What's your favourite letter out of all of them? This is so difficult. It's um, like choosing your favourite child. It really is. Um, how long have I got? Llewellyn's Choice. It's a sad film. OK, the- <laughs> This, this is very sad, actually, because this is, this is the academic's choice. So this is Cicero at his most academic. It's a little letter which he writes to a guy called a friend called Trebatius Tester, who's a very important legal expert. And he says, I know last night, uh, um, Trebatius, we were getting uh, absolutely uh, sloshed. And I know that we had an agreement about this incredibly nitpicking legal issue. I got home and I was terribly, terribly drunk but I still managed to find chapter and verse proving that I was right and you were wrong. <laughs> and so I've got a slave to copy it for you and send it, send it over. <laughs> now, I think just somebody who would sort of pretend to have a hangover and still do the equivalent of sending a PDF across, I mean, in those days, you know, mm. getting a slave to copy it out, is wonderful and so beautifully flawed. So... Let's look at one of his earliest legal speeches, and that is from 80 BC. I think the earliest which survives is from 83. But the speech we're going to look at is Sextus Roscius of Amaria, his defence for Sextus Roscius, because it is one of the great courtroom dramas. If you can't hear the music of Perry Mason in your head as I tell you what happens... (laughs) So it's 80 BCE, and Sextus Roscius the Elder... This is important. Sextus Roscius the Elder doesn't live in Rome, but he's in Rome for the night. He goes out for dinner, he's on his way home, and he's set upon by unknown assailants. They kill him. I did promise you a courtroom drama. You look kind of sad. Don't be sad. It was ages ago. He'd be dead anyway. It's fine. (laughs) It's all all right. He gets set upon by unknown assailants and killed. And then his name appears on a list of proscriptions. Not prescriptions, proscriptions. And proscriptions are the lists of names of enemies of the people, enemies of the state, if you prefer, which are made by, or have been made, by Sulla. Sulla was dictator, but only on a temporary basis. He retires, which is how he gets not murdered on some theatre steps, unlike a later dictator, <coughs> Julius Caesar. Um, but Sulla does not, that doesn't happen to him because he retires, which is quite unusual, isn't it? Former dictator is quite a rare job description. <laughs> I really like the thought of his CV. What did you used to do? Dictator. What do you do now? Mainly golf. (laughs) 
But Sulla produces these lists of the proscribed, of people who can be executed, therefore, by the state because they are traitors with impunity. You will not be punished if you kill somebody who's on the list of the proscribed. And Sextus Roscius, the elder's name, appears on those lists. It has been fraudulently inserted, <gasps> either before the crime as a justification or after the crime as an excuse. <laughs> I know. I'm not naming names. I'm just saying maybe if they're Sulla's list, perhaps it's someone who knows Sulla who might have put his name on the That's all I'm saying. I haven't got any evidence. That's all I'm saying. And then Sextus Roscius' property is sold to the lowest bidder, because if you're an enemy of the state, your property can be seized. So his property, which Cicero estimates to be worth six million sesterces, is sold for 2,000 sesterces to a man named Chrysogonus. And this is the weirdest coincidence. He's old friends with Sulla. <laughs> you know the one with the list? I, how odd. It takes a few days for the news of Roscius's death to reach a place called Ameria, where he owns a farm, which is looked after by his son, Roscius the Younger. Roscius the Younger therefore finds out that he is now fatherless and homeless, because the farm has been sold out from under him before he even knew his father was dead, to a man he's never met before, and he finds this a little bit annoying, let's say. He's peevish, shall we suggest. And so he says, excuse me, I think you'll find, whereupon two distant relatives of his father's who just happened to be friends with this guy, Chrysogonus, who just bought this amazing bargain basement property. Those two guys say, oh yeah, you must have killed him. And they prosecute, I know, good gasp. <laughs> and they prosecute him, not for murder, which would be terrible enough, but for parricide, the murder of a close relative. This is basically the first 20 minutes of a Columbo. That is just true. <laughs> it's just Sextus Roscius's good luck. In a week where he's having quite bad luck, I think we can all agree that he has a couple of very loyal and rich friends and that there is a 26-year-old lawyer desperate to make his name. And that, of course, is Cicero, very happy to take on a case that nobody else will touch. So he starts it. We don't have the prosecution's case, sadly. It doesn't survive. It would be a shame were it not for the fact that Cicero demolishes it in about 40 seconds. <laughs> um, it's delivered by a man named Erucius. He says, why would my client have ever thought of killing his father. You say that they didn't get on. Have you got any witnesses who can prove that? No, you haven't, because they did get on. He loved his father. You won't know what that's like, Arucius, because you don't know who your father is, but... <laughs> he just threw Ciceronian shade, is what happened there. Uh, so, first up, he says, Okay, well, there's no motive, and, you know, he loved his father. You say his father didn't trust him. His father left him in charge of his best farm. And then he comes to the punishment that Roscius the Younger faces, and that is the punishment for parricide. Now, believe me when I tell you that even by the standards of the Romans, who value human life very little at all, even by their standards, the punishment for parricide is horrific. Right? These are people who will cheerily crucify thousands of people in a day. Even for them, the parasite punishment is horrific. This is what happens if you're convicted of the murder of a close relative. You are scourged, and then you are put into a sack. This may sound like fun, it's not. You're put into a sack, into which is added a snake, a rooster, and a monkey. And then the sack is sewn up, 
and you are thrown into the Tiber to drown while panicking animals go berserk and ravage your torn skin. I mean, how disgusting. You've got to think, by the way, that monkey is having an absolutely terrible day. <laughs> he hasn't done anything. It's like, how did I get involved in this? I haven't killed another monkey. Or any, how am I in the sack? Excuse me, I have a question. And thus, the end of the poor monkey. So, a lesser lawyer would gloss over the disgusting details of the parasite sack because they wouldn't want their client, a Roman citizen, to be associated with this disgusting punishment which is used for foreigners and slaves. It's so horrible. Cicero is not a lesser lawyer. So he dwells on the horror of the parasite sack just so he can say, look at the seriousness of the punishment and now look at the triviality of the evidence. They have nothing against my client. How dare they suggest that he should face this terrible, terrible punishment. And also, you know... Qui bono? Who benefits? It's a formulation that's only existed for a few decades when Cicero uses it. We still use it today. Who benefits from the death of Sextus Roscius the Elder? Is it Sextus Roscius the Younger, now fatherless, homeless, and facing the parasite sack? Or is it Chrysogonus, the man who's got himself six million sesterces worth of property for 2,000 sesterces? You'll be unsurprised to hear that Roscius the Younger walks free from court. He does not see the inside of the parasite sack. But more importantly, as far as Cicero is concerned, Cicero's reputation is enhanced forever. <laughs> <laughs> Would you please welcome lawyer Mark Stevens. The published speeches of Cicero are sort of edited, improved versions of what he said on the day. I hesitate to quote country music artist whose lyric reads, here's the way that it should have went. But <laughs> here's the way that it should have went. Do you think that's fair? Is a bit of revisionism is allowed? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you're doing your testament to history here. And, you know, he, he was also slightly constrained during his lifetime. You know, he's got Sulla, the Idi Amin of Rome, uh, <laughs> also a former dictator. Um, uh, he has, has this opportunity to be much ruder about Sulla after his death than he does during his lifetime. So, of course, you're going to revise it. Of course, you're going to make yourself look more heroic and standing up to the, to the grand dictator. So, and always, a story's better in the telling if you improve it a bit, isn't it? I, I always think. Such a lawyer's answer. <laughs> what do you think of his rhetorical techniques, the digressions, the character assassinations, the flourishes, picking on the prosecution? Would it work in a modern courtroom? Some of it does and some of it doesn't. I mean, that sort of you know, repetition, that saying things three times. I mean, and the thing about Cicero is he's the master of the soundbite. Yeah, a lot of the advocacy of the time is very sort of overblown. Uh, I mean, Cicero isn't, isn't known for his shortness, but he, he is actually much more succinct. He does it differently to everybody else and therefore has much more impact. He also brings in this kind of emotion. I mean, you talk about parasite and being thrown into a bag. And so what he's, what he's saying there is, you know, you should take this case really, really seriously because this is an appalling problem that you, you, you're, you're putting, putting this guy up for. And he, he also, he, he really dissects the case. So he actually, as he's going through it, he posits an alternative framework. So he says, this guy is being framed and there's no evidence for the allegations that are being made here. And I think that's really quite important in the way that he develops that. So that sort of stuff you would see today. Are you persuaded by his arguments? Either of you, both of you? Llewellyn. Can I say something for Arucius? Yes. Everything that we're saying about Arucius, everything that we're saying about Sextus, 
Everything that we're saying about Chrysogonus is what Cicero told us. And the beautiful thing about Cicero is that on that day in 80 BC, he persuaded the trousers off. He didn't wear trousers, but he persuaded... Persuaded the togas off. The, the togas off, um, everybody who's there. The deeply beautiful thing about Cicero is that he's still persuading us. And he's persuading us for exactly the reason that you told us. It's a brilliant story. You've got this yokel, Roscius, you know, this poor guy who's going to be wrapped up in a bag. Of course he isn't. He'll just go into exile. It's the worst that will happen to him. And, ooh, we've got a villain called Chrysogonus, who's the perfect villain. He's a freed man, you know. With, and a with Greek name at a that. A Greek name yeah. and dubious, dubious sort of sexual tastes and the rest of it. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a perfect story. And it persuades the people at the time. And they go, oh, poor sexist Roxoroskius. Horrible Chrysogonus. They're still buying it. So always, always with Cicero... You've got to appreciate how brilliant he is at selling a story. Do you think Chrysogonus did it? No. Can I tell you who I think did yes. actually murder Sextus Ro- Roscius Sr.? Sextus Roscius Jr. You do? I do. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> now, you didn't he's see got that into Colombo. <laughs> he's got an alibi. He's in Amaria. Well, it's, you know, what are slaves for? You know, that's... Is uh... <laughs> a sentence Radio 4 will literally never let me broadcast, so... <laughs> he runs his career in politics in tandem with his career in the law. He holds all those political offices. He's quester, he's praetor, at the, virtually the youngest possible age he can be any of them. He becomes consul eventually in 63 BCE. The political world is already in turmoil at that point. It's only a few decades away, spoiler, um, from failing entirely and becoming an imperial system. Already there are ambitious men grabbing power for themselves. They're holding the magistrates out of order. They're refusing to give them up at the end of a year. They're holding them multiple times. It is a mess. But Cicero is madly proud of becoming consul, and quite right too. He's the first person to do it for more than 30 years from the outside looking in. And then when he becomes consul, there's a coup attempt I know, a coup by a man named Catiline. And Catiline, we're told by Cicero, who character assassinates at such a high level, you can almost hear a humming sound when you read it. He tries to to conduct this coup, but he fails. He fails because Cicero manages to best him. He writes four speeches against Catiline, the first of which I think is delivered in, in front of the Senate. There's a fantastic beginning where he says, how long, O Catiline, will you continue to try our patience? He uses every rhetorical trick in the book, hyperbole, Uh, one of his very favourites. He says his own assassination would have been, and I quote, a disaster for the state. (laughs) Uh, Mildly put, isn't it? Lytotes, he loves a bit of deliberate understatement, the opposite of hyperbole. So he says, you know, I don't want you to be killed, Catiline, I just want you to go away. (laughs) A little Lytotes, a little hyperbole, tricolon. Cicero is never happier than when faced with a rule of three. He adores them. My favourite in this speech, known feram, known patia, known sinam. I won't bear it, I won't endure it, I won't allow it. Do you see how that emphasis falls on the third one? Because he is consul, he has the power to say. He won't allow it, he's not going to permit it. He is consul. See how he's done that list of three, a tricolon, but he's added in another rhetorical device, a syndeton. He's taken out all the conjunctions, no ands, no buts. I won't, I won't, I won't. You better believe he won't. Look how serious he is. He uses my absolute card-carrying favourite rhetorical technique in this speech to the greatest effect I think anyone uses it anywhere, and that is apophasis. Ah, apophasis, who doesn't like it? The act of saying that you are saying nothing. (laughs) 
So he goes through what's wrong with Catiline. Oh, there's this and there's that, and you did this and you did that. And then he goes, oh, and another thing. On the subject of those rumours that you killed your wife and child, I won't mention them. <laughs> and I will readily allow them to be passed over in silence. <laughs> did you see what he just did there? He not only mentioned them by not mentioning them, he did it twice. And literally everyone who heard that went, oh yeah, he definitely did it. Yep, <laughs> fell right into his apophastic trap. <laughs> Llewellyn, I chose the Catalina as uh, my favourite of his political speeches because it is such a masterclass in rhetorical technique. Yeah. Do you think Catalina is worth all that effort that Cicero expends on him? He seems like such a minor figure now, doesn't he? He does seem a minor figure, but again, sort of reading between the lines, he's a very talented guy. You know, he's a serious contender for for the the consulship. He he commands loyalty from a, a huge range of of people. He might even Catiline have been a, a a real champion of the oppressed as well. I mean, that's something that Cicero doesn't encourage us to believe. Very hard. Oddly. Oddly. I don't know why. So he's, he's a significant politician. I like to think of Catalina as somebody who represented a serious political alternative. So that's really what Cicero is fighting against, is a revolution. But having become part of this system, Cicero's in love with it. He's, he's much more in love with the Roman Republican system than these guys who've, whose ancestors have been consuls for, for, for 300 years. People like Julius Caesar and, and Pompey and Catiline. And it's, it's for that that he dies. It's, it's fighting for his idea of the Republic that he says all these things about Antony that Antony and, and in particular Fulvia, can't, Antony's wife, can't forgive. Obviously, Cicero wins the argument in, in Catalina. Catiline is eventually killed. Cicero survives. The Republic begins its final collapse. But Cicero makes a mortal enemy in the last years of the Republic, and that person is Mark Antony. I told you, I think, that he wrote four speeches against Catiline. Against Mark Antony, he writes 14. He doesn't get to deliver them all, but he certainly does write them. He calls them his Philippics. He names them after speeches Demosthenes wrote about Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. And uh, they are coruscating, let us say, tactfully. Because of that, he finds himself on a list of the proscribed, a new list, thanks to Mark Antony. I find it immensely touching that Cicero is never betrayed by his own friends or his own slaves. He is betrayed by his brother's slaves, by Quintus's slaves. And he is killed. His head and hands are cut off and they are displayed in the forum. The hands that he used to write those horrible speeches against Mark Antony, the head that he used to deliver them. There is a fantastic story about Fulvia, Mark Antony's wife, going into the forum and seeing Cicero's head and hands displayed on these stakes. She takes the hairpin from her hair and she drives it through Cicero's tongue. So much does she still hate him after death. Don't ever let anyone tell you that words are not mightier than a sword. Even after he has been put to the sword, Cicero can still inspire that level of hatred. And yet we don't think about him very often. We don't think about him very often. And I'll tell you who we should blame. Shakespeare. <laughs> I have had it up to here with that chancer. I'm telling you. <laughs> because here's the thing. In Julius Caesar in which Cicero appears as a character, you've probably forgotten because you blinked. <laughs> he has, I think it's eight lines, 
eight lines to the greatest orator the world had ever known. Eight lines. Now, I would hesitate to, you know, hand the motive over to Shakespeare, but is it possible that he had to study Cicero at school and found him hard? <laughs> I say to you, yes. Yes, it is possible. It is more than possible. It is plausible. And I think he punishes Cicero. I think he punishes him for being difficult, which he isn't even, so there. Um, <laughs> I think he punishes him by giving him eight lines. And the worst thing about it is he gives all the beautiful Ciceronian technique in that play to Mark Antony, to Cicero's greatest enemy. Mark Antony isn't renowned as a great orator by the ancients. Here's what he's renowned for in Plutarch, going out on an all-night bender, going into the Senate still drunk from the night before, having to get, standing up to give a speech and being so drunk that one of his friends has to cup his toga into a bowl shape so he can vom into it and keep talking. <laughs> I'm not saying that isn't an achievement. <laughs> I'm just saying that maybe it's not as good as being the most extraordinary and persuasive orator. And all that beautiful speechifying, all that honourable men stuff, it's so Ciceronian. And there it is in the mouth of his enemy. So here's what I am going to suggest. Next time you see a production of Julius Caesar, and it's important that you do this in your head so you don't get thrown out. <laughs> Next time you see it, and he comes and does his lines, his eight lines, against Casca. I would like you, in your head, at that moment, to be cheering real-life Cicero. Real-life Cicero, who does these amazing speeches and smashes through, you know, societal conventions and is enormously pleased with himself, but likes panthers. I would like you to cheer real-life Cicero while the Shakespearean version gets his blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameo role. And just for tonight, because this theatre is my theatre and I get to choose, we are going to do it out loud. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome to the stage my... Favourite actor of all time, Mr. Dan Mersch. He is going to read you Shakespeare's Cicero. Shakespeare's Cicero. Shakespeare's Cicero. And while that happens, I would like you to out loud cheer, whoop. Perhaps a couple of you could bellow the name of Cicero. Um, if anyone would like to, you know bellow out any of his particularly good bon mots, that would be great. Someone could say, o tempora, o mores, or something like that. <laughs> Whatever you want to do, I would like you to freestyle Cicero over Shakespeare to teach him a lesson. It is the only way he'll learn. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would cheer, real-life Cicero! Good evening, Casca. Brought you Caesar home. Why are you breathless and why stare you so? Why saw you anything more wonderful? Indeed, it is a strange disposed time that men may construe things after their fashion, keen from the purpose of the things themselves. Come Caesar to the capital tomorrow. Good night then, Casca. This disturbed sky is not to walk in. Exactly. <laughs> In the words of Julius Caesar himself, according to Pliny the Elder, rather than that Chancellor Shakespeare, he said of Cicero that it was better to have extended the boundaries of the Roman spirit than the boundaries of the Roman Empire. I think we can all agree. <laughs> Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics, was written and performed by me, Natalie Haynes. My special guests were Mark Stevens, Professor Llewellyn Morgan and Dan Mersch. Our producer was Mary Ward-Lowry. And next week,